Good to see you here this morning. I want you, if you would, to go in and just while everybody's being seated, turn to your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. And a wonderful Sunday school lesson this morning on the omnipresence of the Lord that Chris uh, Hudson taught. It was a blessing. And uh, all of our teachers that have taught, it's been a blessing. Uh, next week, Clarissa's going to be teaching on the grace of God. And uh, we just have a few more actually to go, but they've been wonderful. And I thank the Lord for those. Yeah, we're doing a study on Sunday mornings. This is the fifth part if you're taking notes. And if you want to go back and, and catch the other parts, if you missed a Sunday or something, uh, this is the fifth in a row. We're doing a series on the law. And I believe the Lord really put this on my heart many years ago. Uh, just because there's so much confusion about it, the law. And perversions, one way or the other. Someone would be called a Pharisee or Pharisaical in our day. Or someone would be uh, hyper-grace over here and not believe in any kind of obedience to the Lord. And where does, what does the scripture say? We're always safe if we stay in the scriptures, amen? We're always safe if we stay in, thus saith the Lord. And we don't, you know, we get, we get different uh, perversions that pop up through people that know the Lord or claim to know the Lord. God knows if they know the Lord or don't. But it's, God's word's not perverted, amen? Perversion means a twisting. You, you take something good that originally is good, holiness, you twist it and make it seem like it's a bondage. You know what I mean? You take love and you twist it and the world makes it something else. Uh, and so you can do, do that with grace. You can do that with anything. And, and so one of the things where I've, where I've feel like that I've seen in my life, and I can't speak to every age, to every life, uh, that is, is the twisting of the law and its place in the Bible and its place in our lives today, if any. And remember, we've talked about it. We've talked about the, the, the moral law of God has been a consistent from Genesis 1, okay, or, you know, when God created man in his image, uh, the moral law has been consistent throughout. And it was included in the law of Moses as well. It was enumerated in the Ten Commandments. But the law, uh, not the ceremonial, not the sacrificial law, but the moral law, who he is, how he is, what he is, what he expects of men created in his image, how we're to live, how we're to treat God, how we're to treat uh, one another. That has been a consistent, whether there was a Ten Commandments saying that or not, that is still consistent and we've talked about it. Jesus said, you've read or you've heard it, it said that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, whoever looks at a woman to lust after has committed adultery already with her in his heart. And so that wasn't just the Ten Commandments. He's saying this is how God feels about about that subject. You understand the point? We're not under the law. Christians are not under the law of Moses. I'm not trying to go under it. I'm not trying to put you under it. I'm simply saying that the moral law of God has been inconsistent throughout and doesn't change. And we don't cast off all restraint simply because we're born again now. You know, I'm born again now. I can live like a flower child and just do whatever I want and float from place to place and love whoever you want and do whatever you want because I'm under grace. That is not the grace of God. I quote it all the time. I'm going to quote it again. Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God that has appeared unto all men teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. 
looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I said all that to say, what's the point? Why are we studying the law? Is it just like a, cranking out another course in school, you know, getting some education under our belts? I believe there's a higher purpose to it for our church and for this hour for us to study it. So this is the fifth part in this series, and we're going to look at Genesis 15, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that is come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he, and he brought him forth abroad, verse 5, and said, Look now toward heaven, and see if thou be able to number the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall my seed be. And listen, he believed him, he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him for righteousness. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about, in our series in the law, we're going to do our own little parenthetical. You know what I mean? Like we did our study on Revelation. Remember what a parenthetical is? You're going along and following the Bible chronologically. The events of the end times, for example. And then it stops and it talks about the 144,000 you know, uh, sealed witnesses of God during the tribulation period, Jewish Christians. Uh, this is our parenthetical and our study on the law. Because I feel like it's important to know um, the specific topic. Could a man be righteous in the Old Testament? Could a man be saved in the Old Testament? A man or a woman? If so, how? So we're going we're to look at some of these questions here. But I want you to focus. Our key verse for today is Genesis 15, 6. And he, the, Abram, believed in the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him for righteousness. That word counted is a very important word in Scripture. It means to impute. Okay, to impute. That's the most common uh, definition of the word counted. The Lord counted Abram's faith in God as righteousness. It means to impute. It's not just simply an outward thing where he just decides on a piece of paper now that, okay, oh yeah, I'm looking at my list and I counted Abram, Abram as righteous. It is on a piece of paper in a sense that it's a legal transaction that's taken place. But there's something inward that takes place in this too. Because the word counted means to enter, penetrate. So it's something within. To enter, penetrate, to weave. This is the definition of counted. To weave. So something's woven together. Alright? To account, to regard, to think, to esteem, to value. And so... Uh, about, and I'm throwing out some, some rough numbers, about 430 years before the law was given on Mount Sinai. About 2,000 years before Jesus Christ came to earth to be the propitiation for the sins of the world. That means the atoning sacrifice. About 1,500 years after Adam had sinned in the garden. And because of Adam's sin, right? Sin was passed on to all men and death passed upon all men and that all have sinned. So here's a man 2,000 years before Jesus came, but definitely living in, in a time of where all men were sinners. And 
the Bible says that we read that God Almighty imputed righteousness to this man. He imputed righteousness or regarded Abram as being righteous, a sinful man. A sinful man is being righteous because Abram believed in the Lord. Isn't that what it says? He makes a promise to Abraham. He had already made the covenant back in chapter 12. He's restating. God is restating his covenant with Abram here. And Abram says, I still have no children. You promised me seeds, uh, you know, descendants and nations coming from me and so forth. And he says, he says, no, you go out and look at the stars right now, Abram. Okay, can you can you number them? No, I can't. Well, so shall your seed be. And Abram believed in the Lord. You have to believe in God before you can believe in his promises. Amen. He believed in the Lord. Therefore, he believed in his promises. Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him or imputed righteousness to the man. This was not just any righteousness. This wasn't a self-righteousness. This wasn't a righteousness that, um, you know, we compare men to men and say, Stephen's a little more righteous than Peter and Peter's, Peter's a little more righteous than I am. Not comparing men to men, a true righteousness of God. He imputed it to him, and God made him righteous by his faith in the Lord. So the Lord did something. He, he imputed or wove it into him, interwove this righteousness into his being. That's what it means. And then, praise God, he didn't only make him righteous, then he dealt with him like he was a righteous man. What a blessing! He imputes righteousness to our account. And then he deals with us like we're a righteous man. We know all the sins we've committed. We know all the, the reasons we don't deserve to be righteous. And, and a righteous man would certainly never do this. We know our sin. And yet the Lord imputes righteousness to men and deals with us as a righteous man. It's not any old righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. Paul says, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And so there's all kinds of righteousness. It's a self-righteousness. There's a, even you could say a religious righteousness where somebody has attained more in their religion than somebody else and therefore others esteem them as being righteous. But none of that's going to ma matter at all, is it? The only righteousness that matters is the righteousness of another, the righteousness of Christ the Lord, because that's the only true righteous one He's the just one. And he, by faith, when Abraham put his faith in him, for no other reason other than he believed in him, for no other merit on Abram's part, for no other innate goodness of his own, Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted that faith in God as being righteousness. This is righteousness to you, Abram. Okay? So in our study on the law... We're studying the law um, given to Moses and then through Moses to the Israelites on Mount Sinai about 1,500 years before Jesus came to the earth. So about 3,500 years ago. Christ perfectly fulfilled it. He ended it by fulfilling it. He, he didn't end it by destroying it and taking a machine gun and saying this stupid old law. And a lot of people preach that today. And he did not do that. The Bible says, but Christ is the end, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone 
who that believe it. Okay? The end means the uttermost. Christ is the end. He is the uttermost of the law. He is everything that the law pointed to. He is everything that the law typified. He is everything that the blood sacrifices under the Levitical system typified. He's every aspect of the temple and the tabernacle and the tabernacle worship. Everything that it typified or foreshadowed was fulfilled in Christ. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill it. So he didn't just say this stupid old law. Let me get it out of the way. He did get it out of our way. Amen. He did remove it, but he didn't remove it by ridiculing it, mocking it. Uh, it pointed to Christ for the law is was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. That's what the Bible says. New Testament scripture. So Jesus fulfilled it. And I love that word fulfill. It means to satisfy. Jesus and no one else could satisfy it. No one else did satisfy it. If we were to live for another thousand years, nobody else could ever satisfy it. But Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, He satisfied it. He finished it. And so, uh, about 15 years before the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and 1,500 years uh, before uh before Christ fulfilled it, this law was given. We were studying that law. And here's the question we're going to ask and answer today from the Bible. It's a bunch of questions rolled into one. Were men able to be saved before Jesus died on the cross? Okay, I'm seeing some heads nod. Yes, amen, they were. So I'm giving the answer away early. Uh, were men able to be saved before Jesus died and rose again to be the Savior of the world? And I'll tell you what may make us wonder that uh, would be a, a, a scripture like where, where Peter and John said, neither is there salvation in the, uh, any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Speaking about Jesus, right? So how were men saved before he came? Were they saved? Could men, men be, uh, have a right relationship? Sinful men. And we know all from Adam on have sinned. There's no exception to the rule, right? We've studied that in Romans chapter 5. It's very clear on that. Could sinful men have a right relationship with the Almighty God who's holy during the days of the Old Testament? Any of that period from, from uh, you know, Malachi back to Genesis, which, don't forget this, there was about 2,600 years of, of life on earth with men before the Levitical law was even given. There's 2,600 years. About 25 to 26. Then there's about 1,500 years from the law given on Mount Sinai till Christ fulfilled it. How could men be saved? Could men have a right relationship? Could men die and have eternal life and live with God forever? Could men have true righteousness in God's sight Walk with God, live with God, be justified from un ungodly things in their lives. Could men do any of this before Jesus came? If so, how? Another question, was there mercy from God to sinful men before Christ came? Was there grace from Almighty God given to men before Jesus came and died on Calvary? So was there forgiveness during the dispensation of the law, before it or after it. 
If Jesus is the only Savior and the only name, and He is, by which men can be saved, how were men saved in the Old Testament? So that's all of our questions rolled into one. Alright? And many people don't know the answer to that, to these questions. I consider them one. But many people in our churches today don't have a clue. They don't even like to think about the Old Testament. It's scary to them. It's just a bunch of battles and Philistines and giants and Goliaths and God raining fire on brimstone, fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. They don't want to think about of the Old Testament. And, and yet that is, that is a perversion. That, that is not of God. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And all means all. And all means from Genesis to Revelation. And it's all profitable for the man of God. Are you a man of God or a woman of God or a young person of God? Then it's profitable for you for instruction and righteousness and so forth. And it's all given by inspiration of God. Don't be afraid of your Old Testament. Don't let some new Christian author or preacher make you afraid of the law. I'm not under the law, so don't worry about it, okay? Or make you afraid of the Old Testament or the God of the Old Testament as though He's some different God than He is today. He's not, okay? Many people don't know the answer to these questions that I just asked. Many people don't think about it much. And many people are confused about it. They just are confused. They couldn't give you a clear biblical answer. I want our young people and everybody, to, and our older people, everybody in our church to be able to know these things and to speak intelligently to people uh, about it. Other believers, a lost person, to ourselves, to our own heart, to be able to get up and teach it and, and understand the whole Bible. Not that we know every scripture of the Bible, but we understand the God of the Bible and what He's saying through His Word. And so... Many are afraid, as I said, of the Old Testament as though He was different somehow. If Jesus is the only Savior, then how were men or were men saved before He came? If the law cannot justify men, which it cannot, we've looked at some of our previous lessons, right? But that no flesh is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. Galatians 3. But for the just shall live by faith. And so the Bible says that no, by, the, by the law, by the works of the, the, the law, shall no flesh be justified in the sight of God. But for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We talked about that last week. What does that mean? So if the law can't justify men, and nobody except Jesus could keep it, and we know only he could keep it. Stephen said in the one sermon that he preached when he was stoned for preaching it, he said, Which your, your, the law was given to your fathers by the disposition of angels and they have not kept it. Nobody could keep it. Only Jesus could keep it. So how were men saved? Couldn't be saved by the law per se. Remember, we talked about that. The law was never given to be a savior. The law was given to point men to Christ. The law was given to show the exceeding sinfulness of sin. To enumerate it, to define it, to lay it out there and say, here it is. You say you've done some bad things. Well, let me tell you, here's the bad things you've done from A to Z. And we'll start back over with A and go to Z again. This is what you've done wrong. This is how you've offended a holy God. Here's the specific laws you've broken of God. The law is able to do that. That every mouth may be what? Stopped. It says in Romans 3. Just shut up, basically, about saying bragging in your own righteousness and how good you are. I don't, from a Pharisee to a publican, it doesn't matter. Stop talking about how good you are. Here's the law. It'll shut your mouth because you've broken it. 
You've broken it. And you've offended in one point, you're guilty of all of it. That, um, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be, what, guilty before God. But well, that's not a Savior, is it? The law is not a Savior. But the law is a tool used by the Savior to bring men to Christ that we may be justified by faith. It is our schoolmaster, our tutor. But now that we have received the promise by faith, Paul says, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. So we're not under the law. Okay? So, how were men saved before? Very clearly, the Bible tells us that men were saved before Christ came. How were Old Testament people saved? Men and women, how were they saved? I want you to turn with me in your Bibles and look at Romans chapter 3. Now, our main scripture for the day, if you were to take one down, it would be Genesis 15, 6. But we do have some others we're going to look at. Romans chapter 3. We're going to read verses 21 and 22, and then we're going to skip down. But now the righteousness of God without the law. Okay, so there is a righteousness of God without the law. Is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is how? By faith. The faith of Jesus Christ unto who? Certain group of people, certain people, group of people that lived and happened to live after Jesus died about 2,000 years ago and rose from the dead? No. The righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon, <clears throat> upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. Skip down to verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. This is another important scripture, uh, not really off the subject, but talking about the perversions of the law. Here's another scripture to say, no, we don't make void the law because I'm a believer now. I didn't void it. Christ fulfilled it. There's a difference. Okay. Do we make void? That means to abolish, to render useless, to cease, to destroy, to do away with, to make of none effect to put away, to make idle. Do we make idle or destroy or render useless the law through faith? God forbid. Paul says, yea, we establish the law. So there, my point in that passage was that in verse 21, there is a righteousness in verses 21 and 22 without the law. Okay? There was a righteousness in the law, but it wasn't a saving righteousness. And there was a righteousness without the law. Now I want to read this. Are y'all familiar with uh, Richard Wormbrand? He, he was uh, tortured for Christ, wrote the book Torture for Christ, and put out, puts out the monthly magazine, The Voice of the Martyrs. Um, I think it was in Romania. He was beaten and imprisoned and, and, and went through all the horrible things we read about Christians going through in other countries. He's, and he, he, uh, he gave this quote, and I want to read it. It is amazing for a soul to discover that God gave the law to be observed, but that its observance is not even taken into account as a means of salvation. I thought that was very good and true. He gave the law to be obeyed and to be observed. I say it all the time. If somebody's not, uh, if somebody's not coming to church regularly, somebody's not praying consistently, somebody's not tithing, if somebody's not... Uh, 
just diff- different things that the New Testament would tell us to do. It's a sin. They need to be repentant of. We need to do those things. We need to study the word to show ourselves approved, right? That is an instruction or a commandment from the Lord in the New Testament. And yet those keeping of those things is not the basis of salvation. Not any of one of them or not all of them together. And I think maybe a lost person, maybe some Christians have a hard time grasping that. We're saved by grace through faith. And after I've been saved by grace through faith, God says, here's the way, walk in it. He tells me how to live. And by His Spirit indwelling me and day by day finding my strength in the Lord, He helps me to walk that way. The way He tells me to walk. But I'm already saved. I don't do those things in order to be saved. Nobody can be saved that way. Nobody would be saved that way. There would never be a saved person on the planet if it was based on our perfect obedience to the Lord to be righteous or to be justified or to earn heaven. It, is, it has always been by grace through faith. So I want you to know that in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it's always been by grace through faith. I'm going to give another scripture. If you're taking notes, I'm just going to read it. Romans 4, 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's a mouthful. It's a wonderful passage. Romans 4, 5. But to him that works not, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. That's a verb. He is just and the justifier of them that believe. That's what it says. That's an amazing thing. To justify somebody. How how can somebody be justified? I'm a sinner. What can you do? I'm a sinner. How can you make me not a sinner? God can. I'm unjust. Here's the law. I've broken it. Here's God's holy commandments. I've broken them. I'm a sinner in my very nature. I can't change myself. A leopard can't change his spots. An Ethiopian cannot change his skin. How can I be justified? Well, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted to him for righteousness. It is it has always been, it has always been by grace through faith. The Bible very clearly states that Old Testament men and women, and many were, many were not, were justified by faith. It has always been that way. Jesus said, he that believeth is not condemned. That's a legal term. It's a legal term, like a judge says you're condemned, you're guilty. Here's the law you broke, the laws you broke. I condemn you, you're guilty. He that believeth is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you see a common thread in all this? It's faith in God. He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Well, everybody sinned. The believer has sinned and the unbeliever has sinned. But he that believeth is not condemned. And he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he believeth not in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the key to everything. It should not be confusing. This should be Christianity 101. How could men believe in Christ before He came? That would be the question, right? 
If he came about 2,000 years ago and there was about 4,000 years of human his history before Christ came, that means 4,000 years of sinful human history before Christ came, how could men be saved and believe if, the, if justification comes through faith in Christ alone? And it does, by the way. How could men be justified before he ever came? And the, the, the Scripture is very clear on this as well. God had promised a coming Savior. God had prophesied of a coming Savior that would be the Savior of the world that He Himself would provide. He promised and prophesied and put stick another P in there. He provided a Savior. Promised Him. Prophesied. The, the, the prophecies of Christ's first coming get more and more detailed, more and more clear, I guess, as, as you get near it. You know what I mean? They get near from Adam who sinned and needed a Savior as we approach the coming of Christ through that 4,000 year period. Uh, it, the prophecies got more fine-tuned. We, uh, Alberto read it this morning from Isaiah 53. I mean, how, can you have a clearer picture? Read those, I think, 12 verses in, in that chapter. It has to do with His death on the cross and why He did it. And what it was like and numbered in the transgressors and He Himself himself took our infirmities and so forth um, and but, but God had promised and prophesied of a coming savior and, and then he provided him in Christ and so in Genesis you don't have to turn there but in Genesis 3 this is when Adam and Eve had sinned Eve saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that she was not they were both forbidden to eat of it and the day you eat it you'll surely die the lawgiver had given a law Way before the law of Moses. And he had consequences to it. And the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And so Eve saw that it was good for food and a, free, a tree to be made, uh, make one wise. And she took of it and she ate of it. She was tempted and seduced by, by the serpent. Adam, she gave it to her husband. He ate as well. This was just a willful, rebellious sin. And, and they both, their eyes were open. It wasn't wonderful like they thought it would be. They had a knowledge of sin. They were sinners. And they hid themselves from the Lord in the garden. I always say this, 24 hours before, Adam wasn't hiding himself from God in the garden. He was waiting for him. And God would come in the cool of the day and walk with God. Now the Lord is saying, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Have you eaten that tree of that tree that I forbid you not? What have you done, Adam? Now the Lord knew what he had done. But it shows the heart of God and His love for God. And in that moment, there's a couple of things the Lord does. The Lord took away their puny little fig leaves and made some real clothes for them. In more ways than one, He made a covering for their nakedness. It would symbolize the forgiveness of sins because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. He killed animals. First death that we know of had to do with shedding of blood of animals so that man could be covered with these skins and a proper attire, I guess you would say. And the other thing he did, he says to the serpent, uh, you're going to be cursed. And he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and your seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy heel and thou shalt bruise his head. And that word for it, the seed of the woman, that's specific, specifically speaking of Christ. It may not pick it up. If we just read that and we... We wouldn't know just from that one scripture the totality of that. We would know something from the Bible of Christ. 
But he's saying that word for it, the seed of the woman that would come one day, was going to uh, bruise the head of the serpent. The word bruise there in King James is, means to crush. It means to destroy. The Lord Jesus would come and crush the serpent's head and break that, that hold of sin for anyone who would put their trust in Jesus. That's why He's the Savior of all men, especially to them who believe. There's not another Savior. He's the Savior of the world. But He's only going to be able to save those who believe. Right? But He is the Savior. And so, there's a prophecy about it. I'll give you another one. If you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 18.15. So this is in Moses' day, right? The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet. Have you all ever read that? Well, there's lots of prophets. I mean, there was Isaiah, Ezekiel, David prophesied, Samuel prophesied. There was lots of prophets. What does he mean? There was nothing that specific. In my Bible, it has a capital P. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee. He's going to come out of the Israelites. Salvation is of the Jews, Jesus said. Of thy brethren, like unto me, the Lord is saying this, unto him shall you hearken. Do you remember when John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River and all the people were going out to him? It was of God. He was the forerunner to introduce Christ. He himself was prophesied. He himself had a miraculous birth. Not a virgin birth, but a miraculous birth. And he's out there and he's preaching and teaching, prepare you the way. Uh, you know, he's at hand to basically get, make straight his paths and so forth. And he's preaching this. So the Pharisees come to look out, kind of look down their nose to see what's going on out there. Are all these people going out here? There's some of my church members, and they're out here listening to John. And, and he, he, they, uh, they said, they went to him privately and said, Are you, who are you? What do you say of yourself? Are you that prophet? They knew that prophet was coming. They didn't say just, are you a prophet? Are you that prophet? Why? Because we just read in Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord is going to raise up way back then, read it in Genesis 3. There's probably other scriptures as well before this, but we read about that prophet in Deuteronomy 18, way back then. And they're questioning John the Baptist, are you that prophet? Are you the one that Moses talked about that should come, the Savior of the world? Of course, he said, he denied and said, I'm not. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. My point about that is that the Lord promised a coming Savior. So how could people believe in Jesus before He came? People lived and died, right? Lived and died. There's more time before Jesus than since Jesus. People lived and died, lived and died, lived and died before the Lord came. And some people, praise God, they died in the faith. Some people... They believed in the Lord because He was promised before He came. They had died before He came, but it was okay, so to speak. They died trusting in Him. They just happened to die and the Lord was ready to call them home before the, the Lord came. But they were still justified that, that way. They died before He came because think about it. He was Alpha and Omega, right? I tell people this all the time. I teach a Bible study at Parkview or at Foxy's Bible study and tell the little kids, Jesus didn't just come onto the scene 2,000 years ago. The Word became flesh. He became a human being and dwelt in a, in a physical body 2,000 years ago to finish His ministry on the cross at His first coming and rise again in power and be the Savior of the world. Yes, that happened 2,000 years ago. 
But the Bible says in Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Roughly 800 years before he came. And his name should be called what? I know you know it. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now wait a minute. You're telling me a child's going to be born in the future that's going to be the Savior, the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name is the Everlasting Father? Chris talked about things blowing our minds this morning about God and eternity. I agree. That's one of them that blows my mind. He has always been. So though His Word became flesh 2,000 years ago, He's always been. What's the point? The point is that men that knew and sought God by faith could trust in Him before He came. That's the point. People can trust. you remember this? When Jesus uh, said, Abraham rejoiced to see My day and He saw it. Jesus told the Pharisees because they were boasting, we have Abraham for our father and so forth. He says, if you really knew Abraham and were the faith of Abraham, you would love me, you would rejoice, to, you know, you would trust in me and know me. And, and they said, well, you're not even 50 years old or whatever. And he says, before Abraham was, I am, right? Jesus said that. Before Abraham was, I am. I am is the name of God. That's the one given to Moses at the burning bush. And so men could trust in God. Hallelujah, they could. And trust in his Savior. They didn't know all the details. And as I said, as it got nearer, more, more revelation, more prophecies, more scriptures, more details about Christ and his first coming. But men could trust in God and in his, not their own righteousness, but in the righteousness that he would impute before Jesus came. He's very merciful of the Lord. I just want to read this. Now this is New Testament. Hebrews 11. You know that chapter, right? Hall of Fame of Faith. And everyone listed in there is an Old Testament figure. You know, it starts with, it starts with Abel and Enoch and Noah and, and goes on forth Abram and, and all through Joshua. And it lists them all through Moses and it lists some more and then just runs out of time basically. But listen what he says. These all, all Old Testament saints, they, every one of them lived and died well before Jesus came and rose again. Died and rose. These all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having, a, having seen them far off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth, but now they desire a better country that is a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Are these saved people? Absolutely. They're saved people. Could men be saved in the Old Testament and women and young persons? Absolutely. And praise God, many were. We just listed some that were. But they trusted in the Lord. They were persuaded of His promises. And even, even so much of, of a heavenly home. God's prepared for them a city. He wasn't ashamed to be called their God. He was their God when they put their trust in Him. And He is their God today. And so uh, they died, lived and died, lived and died, lived and died, lived and died for 4,000 years before Jesus came. Some died outside of the faith. Some died in the faith. The Bible said Christ came at a specific time. But when the fullness of time was come, Galatians 4.4, God sending forth His own Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
Okay, so they they have Old Testament saints lived and died before he came, but they died trusting in the coming Messiah. I think some people today in our church world don't know that. But that is the biblical truth. And if I had time, I could give you thousands of other scriptures. But I don't think people know that or they don't think about it. They don't understand it. It's almost as though some people think if you live before Jesus came, you're just out of luck. I mean, seriously. How, how, what a blight against the character of God. You live before Jesus. Boy, if you could have hung on there just a little few more days and, and live you know, uh, up until the point He died and rose again, you could put their tr- your trust in Him, boy, then you would have been okay. I mean, that's not what the Bible teaches, but I think that's some people, what some people think. You're just out of luck if you died before He came. People were trusting in Him before He came. They were trusting in God and trusting in the promises of God, and God was imputing that as righteousness to them. Alright? And so think about one named Simeon. We read about it in Luke chapter 2. It says he waited for the consolation of Israel. Consolation, the comfort of Israel. The promised Messiah. Uh, he was an old man when Jesus was eight days old and brought into the temple to be circumcised after fulfilling the law. Right? Fulfilling the law. Jesus coming in, His parents brought Him in. And it was revealed to him, the Bible says, by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. A lot of people did see death before they saw the Lord's Christ, but they're seeing him now. You understand what I'm saying? They, they died in the faith. So I'm going I'm to bring this to the next section. We're going to be, uh, I'm not closing, but I'm bringing it towards the close. Uh, in John chapter 1, 16 and 17, here's an argument, I guess, that I have heard. It's not a very good one. But on this passage, in John 1, 16 and 17, and of His fullness have all we received in grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You know that passage? John chapter 1. And basically, the law was given by Moses. So, and remember, there's 2,600 years of people basically that lived before the law was ever given. About 14 to 1,500 people 100 years with people living during the law. And it was specifically given to Jewish people. So a Gentile in some other place didn't even know about it for the most part unless they happen to be around the Israelites. And it says the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I heard a, a preacher say this within the last several years with my own ears. In the Old Testament, he said, and I'm quoting, in the Old Testament, a man would say, God wants to send me to hell. In the New Testament, a man would say, God wants to give me grace. God wants to forgive me. Is that true of God? Well, I'm not going to say more about that comment. In the Old Testament a man would say, God wants to send me to hell. That has never been the heart of God. Never been. Why will you die, O house of Israel? We're going to look at some more Scriptures on this in just a moment. But the key to that passage in, in John 1, 16 and 17, where it says, 
uh, and of His fullness have all we received and grace for grace for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I think the key word there is fullness. Fullness. And so there was grace before Jesus came because He changes not, right? God was a God of grace in the Old Testament. Malachi 3.1, I believe. Uh, I am the Lord God. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Why? Because I'm merciful. And I don't change. Whether you live in a dispensation of the law, or before the law, or since Jesus died, and we're living in the church age. Okay? Uh, the key is the word fullness. And the word fullness, when it says, of His fullness of all, have we, all we receive, and grace for grace, that means completion. It means what fills up. There's no question and no doubt that the fullness of grace came through Jesus. Just like we said, all the law and the prophets and the tabernacle worship and the temple worship and all the blood sacrifices that God required, He demanded, He required it. It all pointed to a coming Savior. When Christ came, He was the perfect uh, provision of grace for men. You can't look for a greater one. You don't say, well, by doing certain works, I'll get more grace from God. No, you're, the fullness of grace has come through Jesus. The fullness of truth has come through Jesus. That's another point. If people think, well, God was only, we get only gracious towards men or extended grace and mercy to men in the New Testament days, then you would have to say, was there truth in the Old Testament? Because it says grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So there's no truth in the Old Testament either. No grace and no truth. Of course we know there was. There was grace from God to men. There was truth from God to men. Colossians, I'll just read it. Chapter 2. Uh, well, I'll just quote it. Colossians 2, 9 says, And in Him Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So that word fullness is there again, right? Christ is the perfect representation of the Lord to men. We're not waiting for a, a third testament, an Old Testament, New Testament, that, you know, something else that's got to be done. Christ came, and He is the Savior of the world. He is the perfect represent, representation of God to man. Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So my point of that is that that's uh, erroneous. If Dave Hunt says this about it. Somebody wrote in one of the questions in his Berean call and says, we see that Moses gave Israel the law. Grace and truth came. This is the writer writing a question to Dave Hunt. Moses gave Israel the law. Grace and truth, and he's using that verse that we quoted in John, came only after Christ had come into the world. He says this passage clearly states that Israel could not be under grace and that they could only be saved by keeping the law. Wrong, 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 wrong. The question, he's telling Dave Hunt, we see that clearly this and we see that clearly that. And here's the, the Hunt's response. Some say the Jews were saved by keeping the law. The Scriptures disagree. No man could keep the law. So nobody could have been saved by the law. The law was never given to save men. It was to point men to the Savior. 
Christ is the only one that fulfilled it. So nobody would have been saved if it was only the law. All right? It is clear that salvation by faith apart from the law is found in the Old Testament. That's what we're talking about. The law was never intended to be the basis of salvation. Righteousness is given to those exercising faith in God. We all partake of the same way of salvation. This is true. This is true. That's why the scriptures about Abraham in the Old Testament having imputed righteousness to him by faith are requoted again in Romans in Paul's long epistle of 16 chapters of Roman. Romans telling how, how men are saved. It's repeated. It's repeated. It's repeated. For the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, Hebrews, and Romans. It's first given in Habakkuk. It's quoted again in Galatians. It's given again in Romans. It's given again in Hebrews. The just shall live by faith. And so, I just want to close with a, a few thoughts here real quickly. For, there was forgiveness under the law. And the law wasn't the Savior. But men who lived in the, during the time of the law, before Christ fulfilled it, men who were under the law, the Hebrew people, for example, there still was forgiveness for them. And just real quickly, I'm gonna, I'll give you the Scriptures. Read uh, on your own, Numbers 5, 6 through 8, Leviticus 4, pretty much the whole chapter. I'll read a few Scriptures just real quickly. Speak unto the children of Israel. This is from Leviticus 4, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord, concerning the things which he ought not to do, and shall do any of them. Okay? Then I'm going to pair it and skip down. If a priest that is anointed does commit a sin. If the whole congregation of Israel does sin. Uh, when he sins. If a ruler has sinned. He says all these things. And he goes on to say um, that the priest shall burn them upon the altar, the sacrifices, according to the offerings made by fire unto the Lord. The priest shall make atonement for his sin that he had committed, and it shall be forgiven him. Now, don't get me wrong. There was capital punishment under the law as well. Not for breaking everything. Everything had to be atoned for. Okay? Just like every sin we commit has to be atoned for. But during under the law, there were crimes that could, would have been capital punishment, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, strike for strike, life for life, that kind of thing. So there were crimes under the Old Testament covenant, the law, that demanded death, physical death. But have you ever thought about this? Even if somebody had the death sentence, let's say somebody blasphemed God, and the law of Moses says, take them out and stone them. And the people that heard him, this would have been a tough thing. The people that heard him blaspheme were the ones that were to be the first to throw stones at him. Right now, we hide our ears and pretend like we didn't hear it. I'm not saying we're to stone him. I'm simply saying that would have been a difficult thing. He would have brought um, a fear of God and a reverence in the congregation. All right? But so somebody's got the death penalty under the law. They got a death penalty. You say, well, they couldn't be forgiven. Yes, they could be forgiven. Remember, sin is a spiritual thing. I've visited death row, and some of y'all have as well, death row inmates in Angola. They're waiting their death sentence. They are guilty under our laws, and the law says for your crime, the judge says the sentence is death. 
So they're waiting their, their death. They still can be forgiven, right? They can get, still get right with God. I think some of them do get right with God. I think there are men in prison that are spending life terms in prisons. I met some. I preached to some. I got to pray with some. That I think are true Christians today. That means they're forgiven. And they're still going to spend life in prison or some are going to go and be executed. So what's my point about that? Even if somebody has the death sentence upon their life under the law of Moses, they still could be forgiven by God. Achan committed this trespass, right? He took the accursed thing in the battle of Ai and uh, brought death to a lot of other of his kinsmen because he did it. They picked up stones to stone him. That doesn't mean he couldn't have been saved. It doesn't mean he couldn't repent it and ask God to forgive him. We don't know that he did. We do know that he was stoned and died. But there's forgiveness in every era, is my point. In every dispensation, before the law, during the law, since the law, before Christ came, during the time Christ was on earth, since Christ came, there is forgiveness from God to people that turn to Him, to people that repent, to people that put their trust in the Lord. Not in Buddha, not in their own righteousness, not I'm going to make it up to you, God, by doing a bunch of works. But to him that believed, worketh not, but believeth in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith shall be counted as righteousness. So I'm, I want you to read a couple of scriptures with me just real quickly. This is what David said. Now we know David, right? We know wonderful. God calls him a man after his own heart. David never called himself that. The Lord calls him that. And the, his word calls him that. We know he sinned during his lifetime. We know he sinned notably adultery and murder with Uriah's wife and then had him killed. We know he sinned in numbering, numbering the armies of Israel. Later in his life, the prophet rebuked him for doing it. And uh, so he wasn't perfect. He was a sinful man. And yet he trusted in God. And let's just, I'm going to just read these real quickly in Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Now, he lived under the dispensation of the law. And he says, oh, how I love thy law. He loved the law of the Lord. O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, not according to the law, according to your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. I'm skipping around. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 9. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of what? Thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Psalm 32. Verses 1, 2, and 5. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. That's requoted in in Romans 4, by the way. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. I acknowledge my sin unto thee. This is confession, right? And mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. She says stop and think on this for a little bit. And and what's the point? The point is that there was forgiveness before Christ came, There was justification before Christ came. There was righteousness imputed to men before Christ came. There was saved people, saints of God, that we're going to be in heaven with 
before Christ came, but they had to have trusted in the Lord and in His mercy, not by their own, in their own righteousness, not in their own ability, not in payback. Well, I'll pay the Lord back. Uh, from, uh, not a New Year's resolution. I've messed up bad, but from here forward, I'll do good, God. None of that. Uh, David says, I know it. You don't desire burnt offerings and sacrifices. You know, with the sacrifices of God or a broken spirit or broken in a contrite heart of God that will not despise. It speaks of repentance. It speaks of confession. It speaks of knowing what God wants when a man sins. And what He wants when a man sins is that we trust in His provision for sin, which is Christ the Lord. Even if I died, lived and died before He came, I could trust in Him. And this is how these men were saved. These Old Testament saints. We could talk about Enoch who walked with God. And had this testimony that he pleased God before he died and God translated him. Enoch, I hadn't been translated and I live on this side of the cross. Enoch walked with the Lord and had a testimony that he pleased God. How did he do it? By faith. He's in Hebrews 11. By faith, Enoch walked with God. Okay? How did Abel do it? How did Abel offer what God desired for a sacrifice to God and Cain did not? Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. It says by faith he did it. And by it he was justified. And by it his righteous works still testify today. By faith Noah. I'll just read this. By faith Noah. The Bible says. Uh, by, by faith it says that Noah uh, built the ark. Wherefore the Lord... Uh, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness. Just like Abram. The heir of righteousness, which is by faith. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews 11.7. And he goes on, I'll just say in Hebrews 11.32, what shall we say more? If time, uh, time would fail. Uh, to speak, uh, he says, to tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samson, and of the prophets who by faith. And he fills in the blank after that. Men have always been justified by faith. God's grace extended to those who put their faith in him. Whatever era, whatever dispensation a man has ever lived in, and if they're saved and in heaven or will ever get to heaven, it is going to be by faith. God extends grace to those that believe. And I'll just tell you this real quickly. Note, was there grace in the Old Testament? Now you don't read, if you have a concordance and looked up grace, you're not going to find that word mentioned a bunch of times. You will find it mentioned, which is enough. I mean, it says it. And I'll give you this. But Noah found grace. Noah lived a long time ago, y'all. Noah found grace where? In the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou in thy house into thy ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. And so Noah believes God. And he, because he believed God, he prepared the ark. And God counted it for righteousness and he became the heir of the righteousness of God which is by faith. Time would fail us to talk about all the other examples. Dee, you can come on up here. Y'all know that I've been a little long today. But but listen, 
This is very important that we understand that. We live, we're not under the law. We live in this dispensation of this church age on this side of the cross. Everything pointed to Christ. And now He's come and fulfilled it. We would be sinful and wrong to somehow put ourselves back under something that Christ has fulfilled. To put ourselves under the law or something like that. We're not to do that. That would be a perversion. Okay? But just remember this. There's all through every era there has been God has been gracious towards men. He has been merciful. Thou art for thou Lord art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Psalm 86, verse 5. Okay? Your mercies are fresh and new every morning. Right? And so God has always and it's always been by faith, and I am the Lord, I change not. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't let a lot of this modern hyper grace kind of attitude, new covenant theology, scare you to death about the Old Testament. We're not under the law. I'm not an Old Testament saint. I'm a New Testament believer. Christ came. He has fulfilled it. I do have a great advantage to them. The picture has been clear. The Gospel is laid out in a nutshell. The Holy Ghost has been given in His fullness to, to be a witness for Christ. Yes, we have great advantage living in the days that we live. I'm not denying that. I'm simply saying God has always been a Savior. Look unto me and be saved. The lawgiver has always been the Savior. And I'll close with this one verse. And y'all can stand. You can come to the altars right now. You can find your place to worship God. Say unto them, Ezekiel chapter 33, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's what the Lord wants. That's what He's always wanted. That's what He wanted for Cain. That's what we wanted for Adam. That's what he wanted for all those that died under the dispensation of the law. That's what he wants for every human being today. That then we would turn and live. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace. And Father, we just come before you this morning. In Jesus' name, God, we do love you, Lord. And God, we give ourselves to you right now. God, we thank you. What a kind and merciful Savior. When I read through the Psalms, David just has to stop and say, Selah. Selah means to think on it. He's got to put down his pen and his pencil and his paper and just think on the, the goodness of God, the mercy of God. Your mercies are fresh and new every morning for His mercy endureth forever. When I read Paul in, in the book of Romans, where he says, oh, how, how unsearchable is, is the Lord, His goodness and the riches of His mercy and His kindness. And Lord, we need to do that. We need to put down our Bibles sometimes and, and cry out, oh God, what mercy. In every era, in every dispensation, You change not. Thank You for sending a Savior. Thank You for providing a Savior for our sins. Thank you that his name is Jesus. Thank you for giving us the gospel. Thank you that men could trust in Jesus before he came. Thank you that I'll be in heaven with Old Testament saints of whom the world was not worthy, your, your word says. We'll be with them. We'll all be, some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. 
Old Testament saints came through the blood of Jesus as well. We trust in you, God. Give us a clear understanding of your word. Help us to be ministers of righteousness in our day to clearly proclaim, thus saith the Lord, whether we're witnessing to a friend or teaching a Bible study or counseling someone to speak the truth in love. Y'all find take some time. Y'all, before we just run out, please take some time to thank God and meet with the Lord and call upon Him. Find your place where you're not worried about anybody else and just worship Him for a moment this morning.